You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. I hope you all are well. So last year, around this time, I had a conversation with Dr. Stephanie Fabian, the medical director of the North American Menopause Society, to talk about the current state of menopausal care. Well, Dr. Fabian is back, and she is still the medical director, but now it's of the Menopause Society, which for those who don't know, is the new name of the North American Menopause Society. They rebranded back in July with a new name and a new logo, a much better logo, if I must say, um, and a broad mission to lead the conversation about improving women's health and healthcare experiences. And she has a new book. It's called The New Rules of Menopause, A Male Clinic Guide to Perimenopause and Beyond. So I thought it was a good time to bring her back in and talk about where we are now and what those new rules are and all about the current state of menopausal therapies. Because even though it was only a year ago, the conversation around hormone therapy specifically has been moving at the speed of light these days. And I want to make a note that about midway through this conversation, we get into a discussion on hormone testing, specifically testing hormone levels as part of prescribing menopause care. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is one area that I have been really trying to wrap my mind around because I see women arguing in our social media groups and in the Facebook group all the time. And some, and maybe you're one, insist that testing is the only way to get hormones right. And others saying hormone testing isn't necessary or worse, it's a scam. And I have dug into this an awful lot over the past almost three years now that we've been doing the show. The Menopause Society guidelines specifically say, and specifically, I'm going to read it here, that the use of serum, salivary, or urine hormone testing to guide hormone therapy dosing is considered unreliable because of differences in hormone pharmacokinetics and absorption, diurnal variation, and intra-individual variability. A new report out in the British Menopause Journal says about the same thing. Tracking serum estradiol, estrone, or SHBG is not recommended as it has not been shown to correlate with symptoms. Pretty much every guest I've had on the show, including double board certified reproductive endocrinologist and OBGYN, Dr. Carla DiGirolamo, and the co-founder of the Menopause Center, Dr. Claire Spencer, have said the same thing. Testing is not necessary. During our conversation here, Dr. Fabian also says the same thing, and she says it in her book as well that hormone levels from labs don't necessarily reflect what is in your tissues and that there are no predetermined levels, hormone levels, that all peri- or postmenopausal should be aiming for. Treatment is based on symptoms. Yet, obviously, many women still want their levels tested and many practitioners still test. And here is where I'm going to give you a little peek behind the curtain and a teaser for the upcoming show. Right after I got off the call with Dr. Fabian, I thought, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Heather Hirsch next week, so I should dig into her book and see what she says on the topic. 
And wouldn't you know it, she does talk about hormone levels and testing hormone levels. So I took that opportunity to ask her what's behind that, what is her philosophy on all this, and I don't want to go into it all here, but suffice to say, she had a good answer that basically says you don't really need them, but they're a piece of data that can be nice to have. And, you know, we have a much deeper and more nuanced conversation than that. And you'll hear that in a couple of weeks. But I wanted to give you a heads up that that conversation is coming your way and that I'm not just dismissing this idea of testing hormones, even though like all of these societies say all of these things about it. It's it's a nuanced conversation. And I really appreciated Dr. Hirsch being open to just having that discussion and to those questions. Okay, before we get to it, as always, check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Feisty Menopause. Sign up for my free weekly menopause blog at feistymenopause.com. You can learn all about our Level Up membership there as well, where we bring in guests three or four times a month and have pretty much intimate conversations about all of these topics. And uh, again, thanks so much for your continued great reviews and five-star ratings. They are helping me continue to grow this show going into our, oh, it will be the fourth year pretty soon, which is really exciting. And finally, very quick thanks to AminoCo for their continued support. Women need amino acids, essential amino acids, and they have got them for performance and healing and more. We love their products and appreciate their support. Thanks, AminoCo. You can check out the show notes for their special listener deals. All right, enough of me. Let's have a few words about those awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably-priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. 
it is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. Well, it is great to have you back on the show and congrats on an incredibly thorough book. I have written a few books myself and I know what an undertaking that is. Um, what inspired you to write The New Rules of Menopause? Well, you know, our last book was in 2016 and it was out of date and looking at what's out there now, there's a, so much misinformation about menopause and, and really I think women just need uh, a reputable resource. And so um, we dug in and, and got it done and uh, I'm really excited. I think it's gr a great um, product overall and I think women will enjoy it and get a lot out of it, hopefully. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I'm curious a little bit about the name, because I know that's a really big decision when you write a book. It's like, what are we going to call it? What 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 inspired the new rules of menopause? You know, I I was thinking about that when you were asking the question. And um, actually, I think this came from something that I tell women because they always come in my office complaining that their bodies have changed and they don't understand what happened. And what I end up telling them is the rules of your body have changed and someone forgot to tell you um, uh, because everything that had been working for them before is, wasn't, isn't working now. Right. So, so it's like, what the heck happened? And it's the rules changed. Oh, I um, so, so that's where that came from. Um, and of course there were many, many people uh, who were involved in, in picking that name as well. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know how those conversations go. I like that. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm happy with it. So let's dig into a few specifics. You know, as you talked about, like, it feels like 10 years have gone by. I mean, I started the show in 2020 and the conversation on hormone therapy has changed so dramatically, even over that period. Um, and I feel like women that I see in my orbit are very interested in hormone therapy. What surprises me is how many are still met with resistance or this antiquated messaging, even from their primary care provider or the OBGYN. They're being told you're too young for that or hormone therapy is dangerous. Two related questions, like, is your impression the same? Like, is interest really going up in hormone therapy among, you know, the U.S. population specifically, I guess? And um, do you see that increasingly women are seeking it out? You know, that's a great question. And I don't really think we have good data to say that women are using hormone therapy more now than they were before. I do have more women asking questions about it, but you know, you have to remember that I'm probably seeing the 1%, right. Who have taken the time and the 
trouble to seek out an expert. And most women don't have that. Most women are seeing their primary care providers. So while more women may be asking those questions, I'm not sure more women are actually getting a prescription. That's a good answer. And I remind myself too, that I'm also seeing a biased circle of people, right? You know, who are like very actively engaged in trying to solve this puzzle, you know, if you will, in their life. So exactly. But I think the recent media attention has been super helpful. And I think now women are going, oh, wait a minute, you you know, maybe I should be asking some questions here. So I think that's been nothing but good. Yeah, yeah, very good point. And then the second piece of that is how do we bridge that knowledge gap? Dr. Fabian, like the, you know, we have the statements coming out, you know, on hormone therapy from the menopause society, books like yours. How do we, um, how do we get that information into the hands of the providers who are caring for these women who are asking these questions? Wait, that, that is, uh, that is a key question. Um, I don't know the full answer, but I think it's going to be a multi-pronged approach. So I think it's getting at some of the educational training programs that, that physicians are in. That includes OBGYN. It includes family medicine. It includes internal medicine. And I, you know, I'm an internist. I'm not an OBGYN. And I really think it's the internists and the family medicine doctors of this world that are going to have to own this. And in the past, they really haven't thought of you know, hormone therapy as being in their realm, they have thought of it as being in the realm of a gynecologist. But, you know, let's face it, there are not enough gynecologists on the planet to take care of all the women who who may need hormone therapy. So we have to make this easier for physicians to understand. And, you know, that's, that's educating them with CME programs. But I also think it's, can we even get this into um, the electronic medical record to where we can identify women who you know, maybe having trouble, maybe having symptoms, and we can ping them in the record and say, hey, your patient has a complaint of hot flashes. She's X number of years old. Um, We think she may be a candidate based on her past medical history. She doesn't have a history of a heart attack or a stroke or breast cancer, et cetera. So I think we could almost build this in algorithmically to some medical records too. So I, I think there are a lot of options. Yeah, I agree with that. And that made me think that a friend of mine actually sent me an email that she got from our medical system here that when she hit, I can't remember what the age was, but they were like, hey, we have this menopause education program if you're interested, which is amazing. I was like, that fantastic. Is- right? I, I was love like, that. Wow. Like, that's amazing. That's great. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I, I think we... Uh, you know, as as you just pointed out, women need the education too. It's not just providers, um, because I have women in my office all the time complaining of various symptoms that might not seem like they would be related to menopause, but can be, you, you know, like some of the mood symptoms or joint aches, for, ex- for example, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that you wouldn't naturally tie to the menopause transition. So I think women actually need that education as well. No, you're 100. You are 100 percent right on that. And what do you think before we leave that on? You know, there's an upsurge of online. You know, you've got the Gen Evs and you've got Electros. You've got all these online providers. What is your thoughts on the rise of telehealth in that realm? Well, I think telehealth is here to stay. You know, we we're all using that. Patients want it. It's good. I think the question is, what is the quality of the telehealth? Um, and and that. It, from what I've seen is highly variable out there. And so, you know, if, if women can be connected to a certified menopause practitioner, 
um, who knows what they're doing and who's offering evidence-based care and is making sure that that um, they are taking into account that woman's risk factors for heart disease, for breast cancer, et cetera, and then can assure some sort of follow-up um, and, and making sure she's had her screening mammogram and her pap smear and all that stuff. You know, so that's a lot of stuff to make sure happens. And I don't think that's happening in all of these telehealth visits for menopause. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point. I'd like to dig in a little specifically on hormone therapy because it is such a big topic right now. And you know, going through your book, when you read the health considerations regarding menopausal hormone therapy between like oral and transdermal, every time I read these things, I think transdermal seems to have so many more advantages when we're talking about the potential health risks. And I wonder why we just don't all go that way. Like why is why is that why don't we just all move to a transdermal route? Well, I think for the most part, um, that's what we do prescribe as first line therapy now. And, you know, that would be the, the preferred choice for women with any kind of cardiovascular disease risk factor like hypertension or um, obesity or diabetes. And let's face it, that's probably the majority of, of the U.S. population. But, 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 um, you know, still uh, the oral estrogen is the cheapest thing out there, oral estradiol. And so there's a cost consideration. And, you know, for some women who are young and healthy and, um, you know, their insurance doesn't cover the patches well, which is another issue, um, you know, that that might be a viable option. Excellent point that I had not considered I because I have not taken those routes. Uh, we need Dr. Fabian to talk about bioidenticals, of course. And it's interesting, you know, you you say in your book, like, even though the FDA has, quote unquote, bioidentical products approved, they don't use that term. I'm wondering, do we know why? Like, is there something wrong with that term? Because it seems I, I answer this question like 12,000 times a day. And I think that if it said bioidentical, it would really help. Well, um, bioidentical, the term was made up as a marketing tool by pharmaceutical companies. And so I, I think what we need to be clear about is that um, this term just means that it's chemically, structurally the same as what your body used to make. Um, and, and that's what women need to understand. There's nothing magical about that word. Um, we just need to all level set and be on the same page about what we're talking about, I think. So you know, unfortunately, it's called called a few different things. I've heard it called body identical, bioidentical. Um, some people call it natural, but, it, you know, there's nothing natural about any of these things. They're all synthesized in a lab, you know. So when you talk about synthetic, well, theoretically, they're all they're all synthetic, right? They're all kind of made. It's not like you're you're smearing wild yam on your skin. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's it's all coming from something. Yeah, yeah. And and along those lines, looking at where the research is going, I'm wondering, well, I, I, it seems logical. Like if I'm sitting here and I think logically, what would I, would I gravitate to for a hormone therapy? It does seem logical that I would want something that is as close, you know, to what my body makes as possible. And correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't we seeing that those are seemingly in research coming up with better safety profiles. I'm thinking progesterone specifically. 
progesterone specifically, but when you go to estrogen, I, I'm not as sure mm-hmm. um, because you take conjugated equine estrogens, which has shown even a, the potential for decreased breast cancer risk when used without a synthetic progestin, um, then, then you get to that, that compound of estrogens may have some um, anti-estrogens in it, if you will, um, which act on the breast in a different way. And so some of these may be beneficial um, for some indications, and we just don't know enough about the differences um, between estradiol and and some of these other products. So I think we'll learn more going forward. But again, I say, this is my mantra, we need to stop referring to all hormone therapy as just one lump term, because these compounds are very different. Um, They're heterogeneous, and they, they affect the body in different ways. And so a hormone is not a hormone, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then in the realm of progesterone, I mean, it's micronized progesterone seemingly the way that the industry is going to be going. Well, I think that's most of what is prescribed. Unfortunately, we still run into some insurance coverage issues on that where they favor some of the older synthetic um, progestins over micronized progesterone, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But fortunately, it is available as a generic now. So cost is becoming less of an issue. Yeah, I know. That's great. That's great. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, We can't speak about this without going into the compounded, um, without going into compounded products. And, you know, in your book, and this was just a clarification, you note that one sampling of bioidentical custom compounded products conducted by the FDA found the ingredients varied significantly with with what was stated on the label. Was that hormonal products specifically that you were referring to? Yeah, yeah. And and I can't remember if that was an FDA study, but I remember the Moore Magazine study, which I don't often quote Moore Magazine when I'm talking <laughs> about scientific stuff, but this was, I believe, back in 2012. And they they did a study of, um, it was uh, 10 um, compounding pharmacies that were were online in a couple of brick and mortar ones, I believe. And what they found, they analyzed what was on the label. They looked at what was on the label and then analyzed what was in the bottle. And it was completely different. So the estrogen component um, was 260% of what was on the label. And the progesterone component was uh, about 60 to 80% of what was on the label. So, so women by and large, we're getting overdosed on estrogen and underdosed on progesterone, which meant that they were at risk for the uterine lining building up and even endometrial cancer. Um, and so the, another problem is that that uh, there's not good record keeping in terms of the adverse effects of, of this uh, of compounded hormone therapy. So we don't actually know how many women out there may have gotten uterine cancer because of it, because there's there's not good recording. Yeah, that's many layers, many layers of problems there. And and I also must note because I I don't know what to think of this, if I'm honest, Dr. Fabian, is is that I hear about hormone testing, it's everywhere. Like I'm gonna get my hormones tested, I'm gonna get my hormones tested, I'm gonna get like my my we have a complimentary, you know, it's got twenty five thousand women in this group, and I hear so much of it. And I see in your book that you do not recommend hormone testing anywhere in this pretty, I don't know how many pages it is, 388 page book. Um, Because hormones vary so much day to day, hour to hour, that it doesn't tell you what's in your tissues. There's no 
I'd like you to say that for me. There's no definitive predetermined hormone levels to aim for. What is happening? Like I get, what, please talk to me about this. Like, why is this such a thing? And what should women really know about it? Well, here's the thing, just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? So so in some ways, maybe we have the ability to, to check hormone levels now uh, in a way that's better than in the past. However, I would caution people because hormones are tricky to measure and, and we really rely on very precise ways of measure, measuring them. So what you're getting out there with uh, either a finger stick or a saliva test or a urine test is probably inaccurate to begin with. So let's just state that. But what you mentioned about hormone levels not being useful is also the case, especially in perimenopause when you're still menstruating periodically, you haven't gone through a year without your periods, those hormones are up, down, and sideways. So measuring on any particular day doesn't give you useful information. And then for postmenopausal women, women, you know, I have women coming in all the time with hormone levels. I, well, I don't have any estrogen. Well, yeah, you're in menopause. You know, you're not supposed to have any estrogen. So it doesn't mean that we have to fix that, right? So it's not about the level. It's really about what symptoms are we trying to address for you? And so, and here's the other thing. If you come in saying, I'm having a lot of hot flashes, you know, what should my level be? Hmm. There's another one. We don't know at what blood level of estrogen any one woman will stop having hot flashes. So we are not aiming for a particular level. We want to know how you feel. So so we start, you know, your estrogen dose and we bring you back and we say, did we fix the problem? And that's how we know that you're at the right level for you. So let me let me jump off of that and say that the messaging that women are hearing is that it's because you don't have estrogen that your brain, your heart, all your health is at risk and you're just, you know, you're deteriorating these words. It's almost being treated like a disease state. And I, like full disclosure, I am not on hormone therapy. Everything seems great, but I get really paranoid now that maybe I'm not doing the right thing. But like, wh where are we with that? I mean, because I, I understand women saying, oh my God, look, I don't have any estrogen. I am doomed. You know, but that not it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doomed. I don't feel doomed. No, of course not. And and, and that goes back to the assumption that losing estrogen at menopause is somehow a disease state, like you stated, um, and that replacing it would then be an anti-aging technique or the fountain of youth in some way. And we just don't have any evidence for that, unfortunately. We do know that estrogen protects against bone loss and reduces fracture risk. Um, we know that it's at least not harmful for the heart in the 50s and may actually be somewhat helpful, although it's not indicated for that in the absence of menopause symptoms. Um, and we have no evidence that using estrogen in your 50s is going to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease. It appears to be neutral um, for dementia risk for women in their 50s. So when you step back and look at it, it's not the fountain of youth. It's not an anti-aging serum. We shouldn't be using it for that. Um, it's mainly for symptom management and for some women uh, for, for reduction of fracture risk, it's, mm -hmm. it's also useful. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. 
The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like Feisty Menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Where does testosterone fit into this picture? Yeah, great question. So we don't fall off a cliff with testosterone at menopause, um, you know, like the other ovarian hormones. So instead, we lose testosterone slowly with age, um, such that at the age of 40, our levels are about half what they were at 20. Same for men. Um, Do we need to replace testosterone in women? No, we don't need to replace testosterone in women. Um, And in fact, some very well done studies have shown us that the only real indication for the use of testosterone in a postmenopausal woman would be um, hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And that's a fancy word for low sexual desire that's not related to anything else. Um, So that's really it. You know, it's not FDA approved. We don't have long term safety data in terms of the heart or the breast or the brain um, in, with testosterone in women. We only, the data, safety data only goes out a couple of years. Um, and, and with that data, it looks pretty safe when used um, to get that level just within the normal premenopausal range. So we're not aiming for getting anybody in the male range. So, so the majority of women do not need testosterone therapy. I'll just end with that. A lot of them are getting pellets. Yeah, and that's even scarier because the pellets are often very poorly made and they often disintegrate. And I've seen women with testosterone levels that are 
well beyond the male range. And the problem is you can't do anything about it. You just have to wait for it to wear off. So I'd strongly advise against pellet use for women. Yeah. I, we've said that a lot, but people, um, the message is not, if we're talking about those information bridges, that's, that's, that's on my end and, and our end and we're, we're working on it, but there's a lot of information to get bridged out into the. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> Keep trying. I am. I'm trying very hard. Um, I have a kind of a nuanced question for you. I was listening. I'm sure you know who Dr. Peter Atia is like, cause he's all over everything. Um, you know, he had a show with Dr. Joanne Manson on, you know, about the women's health initiative and they had a quite a long conversation at it. And, and at one point he's quite pro hormone therapy and I think pro hormone therapy and I'm kind of putting words into him, but maybe not almost as like, I think kind of everybody should go this way because it makes sense. But he also said that he questioned if we can use any of the studies from the WHI era in our meta-analyses because hormone therapy itself has changed so much over that 20-year span. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts there. Well, I get what he's saying because he's saying it's a different type of hormone therapy than what we use now. But here's the kicker. That's pretty much all all the data that we have that's randomized controlled trial data. Um, There's very little data out there. And that by far is the biggest study that we have. So it's the biggest and the best study that we have. Um, to, To say that it shouldn't be used for analyses is rough because then we really don't have much at all. Um, and, and the and the issue is that nobody is going to spend a billion dollars on a trial again um, because in the NIH's mind, I think they think if they've answered that question, um, which, you know, there's still a lot more questions out there, but it's trial of that magnitude yeah. probably will never be done again, unfortunately. Um, but so therefore, we have to work off the data that we have. And that does include the WHI data. And I don't think we should just throw it out. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that. Because there are many ways that you can you can parse that data, and I, I think people have been kind of intelligently at this point. And, and we just have to say, like I said before, not all hormone therapy is the same. Yeah, we have to recognize <laughs> that 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 trial was done with conjugated equine estrogens and medroxyprogesterone acetate, and that's what the results pertain to. They don't yeah. pertain to micronized progesterone. They don't pertain to transdermal estrogen estradiol, you know, these are very different, but we can take it for what it was, right? Yep. A hundred percent. And, and just go forward. I a hundred percent agree. Speaking of, speaking of all of this, um, I think in this era of new roles of menopause and where we are now, it is really important to speak about that, that symptoms that your hot flashes are not just something that, you know, is like you need a fan and are annoying the the one of the most interesting things that i've seen coming out you know going to the the menopause society meetings and and following this literature is is that connection between the severity and the frequency of your symptoms and maybe serious health implications whether it's might matter hyperintensities in your brain or 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 heart disease can you speak a little bit about the connection between the symptomology that can happen with menopause and those chronic diseases? And then do we know if taking care of it then mitigates that risk? Yeah, great question. So we have a lot of preliminary data and and most of it is from uh, SWAN. So the study of women's health across the nation um, that shows that hot flashes may not be benign. And the women who have more, more hot flashes, more severe, more prolonged hot flashes tend to have more markers of heart disease. And even in some recent studies, more 
um, adverse outcomes later on in terms of, of heart disease and stroke, um, you know, there's those studies do need to be repeated in other populations to really confirm that. Um, and, and also, as you mentioned, there are some brain changes that are associated with hot flashes too. Um, you know, and it's chicken egg. Um, did the hot flashes cause that? Is it a common mechanism that caused both? Um, you know, so so there's a lot we still haven't really tied together. And your question at the end was great. Do we know that mitigating the hot flashes or treating the hot flashes would then change your your disease outcome later on? No, we have no idea that that's the case. So, so yes, while hot flashes may not be benign, and I, I think that's a, a great point to make, I think we can also say they're not benign in terms of their effect on quality of life. So, so women are suffering, they're not sleeping, they're getting to work, they're not functioning well at work. And we, you know, the study we just published a couple of months ago says they're actually missing days of work because of their menopause symptoms. So, so I think it's fair to say that menopause symptoms that are untreated are, are not benign you know, for any of us and not for the U.S. economy. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. And and it's good enough as a means to an end just to have a better quality of life, right? No matter what. Right. Yeah, that, that makes 100% sense. I The final question for you, and I, then I will let you go because I know you have a very long day ahead. As I appreciated that you included a section on embracing your third act, you know, because I personally think that this is a super powerful, exciting time of life. And um, you know, it can get painted as this this terrible disease, negative brush, and I I I fight that with everything I have. Um, and you also talk about taking care of some of maybe the body image issues and the things that will keep you from em- embracing this time of life. With all of this, I would love you to leave us with some ways that you recommend women protect themselves who want to embrace this time of life from the predatory marketing that is descending on us, you know, that that really hones in on those body image, self-conscious aspects of this. And, and I, I, if I see one more thing, like, about the meadow pot or about all these things, it's just like, it's terrible. It really bothers me. Well, and it makes us think that that aging is somehow, you know, something to be embarrassed about. And, and it's very interesting that that we don't have the same type of marketing campaigns for aging men. Um, and, and, you know, when I have women coming in, you know, pointing to this body part or that body part, and, you know, I asked, asked them about their partners, and their partners may have a, a belly as well, but they don't seem to be bothered by that. And I'm like, you know, there's a double standard here for women, and it doesn't seem like we really ought to be obsessing over every little thing on our bodies. And you know what, you might have been a size two when you graduated from high school, but is it reasonable to expect that you're going to be a size two at the age of 60? Probably not. Um, But you know what, you can be perfectly healthy a couple of sizes larger than that. And I think we need to start thinking about health and health span rather than the physical stuff. I mean, that, you know, the, my, my body measurements or, you know, the way my clothes fit or or my wrinkly skin or my thinning hair, whatever it is, the goal is to be healthy um, and to have that health span that we can really take advantage of these years after menopause. And let's face it, we're now living one third to one half of our lifespan after we have our last menstrual period. That's never happened before. 
that's never happened before for humans, you know, for human females anyway. So, so this is brand new territory. And I think we need to figure out how to maximize, you know, our, our quality of life and our ability to continue to do what we want to do. It's not just how many years that we live, it's how many healthy years we live, right? Oh, yeah. And I, we're all about, you know, if you do, and I personally believe this, if you feel strong and vital, and you're living this healthy life, the rest of that kind of takes care of itself a little bit better, because you feel better. It does. And you know, if there is a fountain of youth out there, it's probably not hormones, but if there is a fountain (laughs) of youth out there, it it is, it is a healthy lifestyle. Are you doing all the things that you can be doing to maximize that? And uh, everything that's good for your heart that you hear about, meaning get enough exercise, get enough sleep, stay on a regular schedule, maintain a healthy weight. Um, you know, the quality of your diet is important. All of those things are going to help with brain health too. Um, so think about that in terms of what's going to get you through the next 30 or 40 years um, and still enjoying your health. Well, thank you. Thank you for the book. I will put a link to it in our show notes and uh, keep up the great work, Dr. Fabian. We need more of you. Well, thank you. Same to you. And I appreciate you getting the message out there uh, about menopause and hormones and all of it. So appreciate everything you do. Thanks so much. Well, that's our show. Join me next week for a wild ride of a conversation I had with Irish freediver and visual artist Nina McGowan, who shortly after turning 50 secured a world record dive of 43 meters, that's 141 feet for the Americans in the house, no fins, that involved holding her breath for two minutes and 10 seconds. We talk All about her journey from the dance floor in her 20s to the ocean floor in her 40s and 50s and how she's broken records in the midst of menopause. So come on back for that one. And until then, you know what to do. As always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.